We good? There we go. Thank you. Uh, good evening. We're going to continue looking at Romans chapter 3. And tonight, uh, we are going to focus on verses 24 through 26. But I'm going to begin reading in verse 21 through 26. And then we're going to concentrate on verses 24, 25, and 26. So Romans chapter 3, verse 21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And what uh, is important for us to understand concerning the five solas of the Reformation, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, and God's glory alone, is that the Reformers were not inventing anything new. Uh, It was not as though they were disgruntled employees and they were trying to think about how they could get under the the iron fist of Rome. Um, They believed that they were um, God's instruments to reform. In fact, their their ultimate desire was not a, a, a church split, if you will, from Rome, but truly a reformation, that Rome would recover what they believed had been lost for many, many years, which uh, were these doctrines, uh, these precious, precious doctrines from the Scriptures. So they, they weren't creating anything new. Although we talk about sola gratia and sola fide and solus Christus, um, in these Latin terms, they were simply slogans or shorthand for ancient biblical doctrines um, that had been... Um, covered over for many, many decades by the church. And so here we come to Solus Christus, and where this flies in the face of the teaching of Rome at the time was that um, Christ was needed, Christ was necessary, but Christ wasn't enough. And so you had at the time uh, what actually incited uh, the Reformation, one of the initial events um, was uh, Tetzel, who was a, a person commissioned by the Pope to raise money for the building of St. Peter's Basilica. Uh, and so Tetzel had this expression, for every coin in the coffer that clings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so there was a fundraising campaign to try to raise money to build St. Peter's Basilica. And, and in an effort to do that, Tetzel, who was ingenious in his marketing, said that, well, if, if you want to get your family and friends and neighbors and co-workers and dearly beloved deceased persons that you know out of purgatory, you can pay a little bit of extra money. We're going to have a special offering that we're going to take up. For every coin in the coffer that clings, a soul from purgatory springs. And, and this was an absolute offense to Luther who, who understood what was going on. In fact, I'd mentioned the 95 Theses, October 31st, 1517, he hung those 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. If After the first one, which is repentance for all the Christian life, 
um, many of the next ones have to do with what the Pope can and cannot do. And he said the, the Pope uh, is only absolving people of offenses that they've committed against the Pope. But their offenses against God cannot be absolved by Him. And so that's much of what the rest of the 95 Theses is about is the limitation of papal authority. And so for us today, this doctrine of solus Christus is vital. And as we concluded last night, it's not just faith as a doctrine in and of itself, but it's faith in. So it's by grace through faith in Jesus that we are saved. And there is salvation in no one else. And so tonight from this text, we are going to talk a little bit about Jesus. And I say a little bit, emphasis a little bit. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal Word made flesh. And so, um, there's, there's so much here. Um, I, I feel like I just want to keep saying we're doing a flyover tonight concerning Christ. Um, from this text, we see a few things. Um, and what I would like to focus on are, are three um, one is where we err, um, where we get off concerning Christ, both inside and outside the church. Two um, would be the offices of Christ. So we're going to talk about the threefold offices of Christ. And then the third thing is the covenant of grace um, that was secured for us by Christ. So as Paul writes, he says that we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now this Christ Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. We'll come back to that word. It's a big word. A propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, and we'll come back to that in our, our very last point concerning the covenant of grace. In His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now where we get off, now I mentioned on Sunday morning this recent survey that Lifeway did concerning our errant views inside of the conservative evangelical church. And uh, one of the things that that survey revealed is that there is a, a vast majority of people who are Arian in their confession. Now, Arius, um, to give you a little bit of history here, Arius was condemned uh, in the Council of Nicaea, uh, 4th century, as a heretic. Now, there was an expression that Arius had, and the expression that Arius had was that there was a time that the sun was not. So what Arius taught is that, yes, Jesus is very old. He, he's, he's very, very, very old, but He was created by the Father. Now, Arius in our confession, if we are Arian in our confession, then what that means is that um, we are lacking a biblical understanding of the Trinity. See, the one God that we worship is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three co-equal, co-eternal, co-infinite. And sometimes the way that this fleshes itself out in the context of the church is you may say, well, who created the world? Well, God did. Well, okay. Uh, well, God the Father created everything. Well, what about the Son? 
Where was He at in creation? Well, the Son created everything. Everything created, this is Romans 11, this is the doxology that Paul will write at the end of this letter. Everything was created by Him. By Him. And for Him. And through Him. Everything. So, Arianism starts to creep in a little bit um, when, when we consider it. Um, Arius also, uh, a nice historical fact is that um, we, we don't uh, believe, like, looking to see if there's any kids in here, in Santa Claus. Um, but actually, St. Nick uh, is, is a historical person. And he was there at that council. And, and it, it's told that um, he actually got so angry uh, with Arius that he punched him in the face. Uh, during that council. So uh, let that be the picture of Santa Claus that you paint to your children. Like, this guy took his doctrine serious. I mean, he punched the heretic in the face, all right? So that guy we want coming down our chimney this Christmas. Um, that's Arianism. Now, the, the way that this looks today, uh, and, and this is what I find to be most frequent in the church, um, is that Rome said that you had to come through the Pope, Right? Um, you prayed through Mary, and, and you came through the Pope. So the, the expression that popes were the men that could make the kings come a-crawling is that they, they held, the Pope held the power of the keys, binding and loosing, absolving, condemning, uh, releasing from purgatory. And so this, this into this, into that situation, and into our 21st century context, is this beautiful doctrine of Jesus and Jesus alone. Solus Christus. For our life and our salvation. Um, if you looked at it in an equation sense, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing C.S. Lewis here, uh, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Uh, Lewis said that the man who has God and nothing else has everything. And the opposite of that equation is everything. Jesus said that if you were to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul, that it is a, a pitiful, terrible thing. Everything minus Jesus is nothing. You could have everything. Gaining the whole world and forfeiting your soul. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Now, we are far from Rome today in the, the evangelical church. Um, but what I find to be um, very unfortunately frequent uh, among many of us is that it's not that we would deny Jesus. It's not as though we would say we don't need Jesus, but we want to add to Him. So, so I need Jesus and. This is the way that it plays out. Jesus and. And at any point you put the and, you're getting way off track. Jesus and the success of my children. Jesus and financial stability headed toward retirement. Right? These are the things that will make me secure. That will make me confident. That will make me comfortable. The things that satisfy Jesus and. So we, we, in the church, we don't have a problem with no Jesus for the most part. But it's Jesus and. We, we want to add to Him so quickly. Jesus and the affection of my spouse. 
So if I'm not getting that, then I'm, I'm, I'm not satisfied. I'm not comfortable. I'm not content. Jesus and. Another way that this looks um, within the context of the church is that where uh, the, the papal authority played itself out in the power that the Pope held, um, today we have, uh, I had a professor at Southwestern Seminary that said that we in the evangelical church have traded one Pope for 300,000. And, and what he meant by that is that um, we have made our pastors our Popes. So that the pastor is the one who brokers our faith. And that doctrine of the priesthood of the believer where you don't need a mediator because you have one in Jesus. So you don't need Mary. You don't need the Pope. Jesus is sufficient. That priesthood of the believer doctrine that we hold so, so dear comes out of this. And so what we've done is that we've made in, in, in ways that would make the, the reformers turn over in their graves, if you will, we've made those pastors in our lives, those popes. And so we, we feed on the Word of God directly from the, the hand of the pastor and no more within the context of the church. Evangelical church, I'm talking. So we eat, you could say, from the, the living Word once a week. And, and, and that from the, the man who's, it's his job to study it. It's our job to, to be spoon-fed it. And so we, we broker our faith. We, we are not very far from Rome. And, and yet, Paul, in, especially in 1 Corinthians, would say that you have the Spirit. God has given you His Spirit. And it's the Spirit whose job it is to teach us spiritual things. This is why Rome put, uh, they, they actually put a bounty on the head of the men who were translating the Scriptures into the vernacular, into the common language of the people. They wanted them dead because they, they knew what was happening. It was taking the power out of their hands to have this precious book that men through church history have died to bring us in our own words, in our own language, so that we could read it. And by the gracious work of the Spirit, understand it. Jesus in John 14 and John 16, it's better that I should go. I'm going to leave you one, the paraclete, the helper, and He's going to remind you of everything that I taught you. He's going to point you to Me. And so, so the Reformers understood that and they wanted to get, and we'll talk about that tomorrow night with Sola Scriptura. They, they knew the importance of getting God's Word in the hands of God's people. And so we have, uh, in, in many ways, um, forsaken the priesthood of every believer in turning it over to the pastor. You study it. You tell us what we need to believe. And next week we'll come back for more. But Monday through Saturday, we are going to starve ourselves. And, and just, I know this is an analogy and they all break down, but if you were to eat once a week, what would happen to you? You'd shrivel up and die. And there's a, a spiritual anemia, a spiritual starvation that's happening with the, the Western American church today. And I would say it's connected to Rome. And Solus Christus, we, we have a mediator. We have one who has entered into the Holy of Holies and He's rendered the curtain in two. And, he, and He's opened it up for us to have full access. 
full access. As the writer in Hebrews 4 says, that we can come boldly before the throne to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. And that's now. Now's the time of need. And because of Jesus, we have full access. So, uh, just again, briefly, this is where we've, we've gotten so far off. Now, outside of the church, so if in the church it's Jesus plus, outside of the church it's the same kind of thing. It's, it's a, a search for a Savior. It's just in, in anything and anyone else other than Jesus. Now, I, I, I like to joke with my kids a little bit, and I'll, I'll say, do you know what Jesus' last name was? And it wasn't Christ. There wasn't like Joseph and Mary Christ, and then they, they you know, had Jesus, and they, they gave him that last name. No, Jesus, it's from the Hebrew, uh, Joshua. It means God saves. That's, that's what Jesus' name means, God saves. Christ is from the Hebrew um, for Messiah, and it means anointed. So, God saves. God's anointed one. That He was the Messiah. He was the promised one of the Old Testament. In the flesh. God in the flesh. The anointed one of God to save. That's Jesus Christ. And so, outside of the church, everybody's looking for a Savior. They're just looking in all the wrong places. In all the wrong people. And that's the way that this plays out outside of the church. There's a, a good uh, old book written in the 1940s, 1950s. And it's about this Catholic priest who walked by a, um, a brothel every day. And every day he would um, pray for the prostitutes that sat on the curb, that sat on the stoop. And he would have to walk by between his home and his parish, um, this, this brothel. And so finally, he decided that he was going to strike up a conversation with one of the prostitutes there. Father Brown was his name. And he begins talking to this prostitute, and, and from there is this budding relationship. And the rest of the book is about this relationship that Father Brown has with this prostitute and, and his attempts to convert her and his insight into her life. Uh, it's really a fascinating book, but there's this statement that comes out of the book that the author says. And he says that the man who stands on the doorstep of the brothel and knocks, is looking for God. The man who stands on the doorstep of the brothel and knocks is looking for God. I would submit to you that, as I, I shared on Sunday morning about the, the epidemic of, of heroin use and overdose in my town, that those people are looking. They're, they're looking for something to save them from their misery, from their pain, from their hurt, from their guilt, from their shame, from their sin. The man who stands at the door of the brothel and knocks. In fact, Ecclesiastes, um, the writer of Ecclesiastes says this in 3.11, that God has put eternity into the hearts of men, yet so that He cannot find Him. I don't want to misquote that for you, so I'm going to, uh, to read that for you really quickly. Ecclesiastes... Ecclesiastes 3.11, that He has made everything beautiful in its time and He has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That God has put eternity into the hearts of man. And the way that Augustine said this is that man was meant for thee and he will not find his rest until he finds it in thee. 
And so outside of the church, inside of the church, we have a Savior, but we're often trying to add to Him. Outside of the church, people are looking. Again, Augustine said that we don't mess up. Man does not err in pursuing happiness. He errs. He messes up in by choosing paths that will not get him there. Everybody's wanting to be happy. Everybody wants to be saved. And so God puts forward as a propitiation. Now the three offices of Christ. Um, here in verse 25 when it says that God puts forward as a propitiation. Um, I, I want to talk about this in uh, the context of Jesus' threefold offices. Now his threefold offices are prophet, priest, and king. These are the offices of Christ. This is the work that Jesus fulfills. In verse 25, when Paul says that God puts forward Jesus as a propitiation by His blood. Now this word is translated um, at, at least two different ways in the Scriptures. And it can actually be taken two different ways. The Greek word here that uh, in my version says propitiation. Um, some other versions may say expiation. Um, this is the same word if you were to read 1 John 4.10 where um, the writer there, John, says this. He says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Some versions there in 1 John 4.10 will say atoning sacrifice. And this is Jesus being an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, propitiation means uh, if you were to pro propitiate, you, are to, uh, you will appease. It's an appeasement. And so this is getting at um, what we talked about a little bit last night concerning the wrath of God. That Jesus appeases, is an atoning sacrifice, is a propitiation by His blood of God's wrath. Now, the, the wrath of God has fallen on hard times in the 21st century. That is not something that we like to talk about. We don't write devotionals on it. Um, it it's, it's not the stuff of songs. Um, it, it's fallen on, on uh, dark times, on hard times. But the wrath of God was something that the Reformers understood um, that they set under, that the whole world was under. You know, we love to quote John 3.16, right? And it's, it's a, a great passage. It's certainly worthy of being quoted. And, and most of you know this. You've, you've learned it from childhood. Whoever, for God did not send His Son into the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And, and then go on from that into 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in, uh, in order that the world might be saved through Him. And then look at verse 18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. He sits under condemnation. Whoever does not believe is under the condemnation of God because of his sin or her sin. And so um, the Reformers understood this. They understood that what they were saved from was the wrath of God. Now, as, as somebody, I, I like to say to people that really question this and say, gosh, I, I don't want to believe in a God who has wrath. Um, usually, just for shock value, I'll say, listen, that's exactly, 
you, you have no problem with God's wrath. You want a God of wrath. What you struggle with is grace. You understand wrath. If somebody were to break into your home and steal all of your stuff, or key your car and puncture your tires, or kidnap your child, and, and hold them for ransom, what you want is you want that situation to be made right. You want justice. And, and wrath is love's response to wrong. It's wrong that they broke into your house. It's wrong that they keyed your car. It's wrong that they kidnapped your child. And, and that sense that you are experiencing of wanting justice is because you love. Because you love your child. And so wrath is love's response to sin. is love's response to wrong. That it would actually be unjust. You know, I take my kid. Don't, I've got more. You know, don't, don't worry. No, that's, that's wrong. It's right that you experience that. That you, you want this situation to be righted. Where we really struggle is, is with grace. I, I think that we all intuitively understand and want God to be just. We just want Him to be just with everybody else. <laughs> not, not us. We want grace there. And so, um, what's important here in verse 25 is who is the one that's putting forward the propitiation? God Himself is putting forward the propitiation. God is the one putting forward God to propitiate, to appease, to appease God. This is salvation that cannot come from works. It must come from grace. So God puts forward Christ his Son, as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now Jesus in His threefold office, office is prophet, priest, and king. Now um, again, this comes out of the Reformation. There was a, a robust teaching on what Jesus was doing as Jesus. And, and they out of this, and again this is not anything that's extra scriptural, this is within the context of Scripture, um, there was this, this highlighting of Jesus as prophet, as priest, and as king. If you turn over to Acts chapter 4, you'll see Peter, uh, Acts chapter 3, I'm sorry, Peter preaching uh, in Solomon's portico. And he says in verse 17, Brothers, this is Acts 3, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets... That his Christ, his anointed, would suffer, he fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins might be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he might send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Now, a prophet was one who spoke the very words of God, thus saith the Lord. In verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Listen to him. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And Peter is talking about Jesus. That Jesus is the better and true Moses. That Moses was an archetype. Moses was a shadow of the substance to come, which was Christ. And that Jesus came as God Himself in the flesh to speak the very words of God. And this is why Jesus said in His high priestly prayer in John 17 that I spoke all that You gave Me to speak. 
and did all that you gave me to do. And so Jesus spoke the very words of God as God. He was the prophet. Now I mentioned before his priestly office. Now if you flip over to Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus fulfills the priestly office in making sacrifice, but not sacrifice of blood, of the, the blood of bulls and goats and doves, only to have to be re- repeated year in and year out. The, the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, of Jesus spilling His own blood as the better and true High Priest. His eternal blood shed, making an eternal sacrifice for us. This is why today, when we come here to worship, we do not come bringing sacrifices. We bring ourselves, as Paul would say in Romans 12, living sacrifices, but we don't bring bulls, we don't bring goats, we don't bring doves, because um, we would be making a mockery of Jesus' own sacrifice and what He's done. So the reason that we don't do that today is because of Jesus in His priestly office and King. And what I love about the the reality of Jesus as King is simply the answer to this question. Where is Jesus today? Now the doctrine, the reason that we have um, at the end of the Gospel accounts of His ascension, also in Acts, is that the doctrine of the ascension led for the Reformers to talk about the doctrine of His session. And the doctrine of Jesus' session is the fact that He is ruling today. That He is on the throne. Seated at the right hand of of the Father with the heaven and earth as His footstool. Jesus is ruling. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will tell us that He is ruling now to bring every power and ruler and authority under Him to disarm them and then He's coming back. And when He comes back, no more death. Death is the last enemy. 1 Corinthians 15.26 The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that is the return of Christ. So we know today that Jesus is actually mediating our covenant. That you and I, when we pray today, Jesus is actually praying on our behalf to the Father. The Spirit, Romans 8, in us, cries Abba, Father. And the Spirit takes our prayers to Jesus. And Jesus takes our prayers before the Father. That when you pray, the Trinity is praying with you. That's, that's awe-inspiring. That's amazing. I, I wish I had more adjectives for that. But this in Jesus' kingly office. Now when Jesus went into Jerusalem, He did so on what? In fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem to be crucified, what did He ride in on? That's right. What was that? Donkey. Yes. The, the fowl. The cult of a fowl. Uh, 
And, and so when Jesus comes back, what's he riding in on? White horse. That's right. Flip over to Revelation chapter 19. Jesus rides into Jerusalem to be crucified as the suffering servant fulfilling Isaiah 53. Like a lamb to the slaughter. That is not the way that Jesus is coming back. That is not the way that He's coming back. Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems. And He is a name written that no one knows but Himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of of lords this is the jesus that we serve this is the jesus high and lifted up this is the jesus exalted this is the jesus who is coming back to judge the nations king jesus the white horse was a a a mark of triumph of victor of a of a conquering king and this is the picture that john on the island of patmos saw concerning christ's return Jesus as prophet, Jesus as priest, and Jesus as king. The threefold office. Lastly tonight, I want to talk about the covenant of grace. Now, where Paul writes that God puts forward Christ as a propitiation by His blood, this is the atoning sacrifice. Jesus' blood atones for our sin and absolves the wrath of God. So the wrath of God it goes over us to show God's righteousness in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. I talked last night about this picture of the Exodus that comes out of this. This is why Jesus in His prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before His crucifixion says, let this cup pass from Me. And and the question that we all ought to ask was what was in the cup that Jesus didn't want to drink? And it was the cup that was foretold by Isaiah and Jeremiah. It was the cup that John saw in Revelation, the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus drank it to the dregs. Jesus knew that He was going to be the object of God's full fury on the cross. Which is why He cries out, Lama, 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 uh, Sabachthani. And and it's, My God, My God, why have You forsaken? Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani. My God, my, that was the Aramaic. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus was experiencing the hell that we deserved on the cross. And that because, and it, catch this in Paul, in verse 25, God puts forward Christ as a propitiation to be received by faith to show God's righteous, righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former 
sins. Now there's another picture here. One that I showed you last night was from the Exodus. But I want you to take you to this covenant of grace that we see um, foremost in Genesis chapter 15. And this is how we will end tonight. Uh, I think this is one of the most profound pictures of the Gospel in Genesis and in the Old Testament. Now, this is God's covenant with Abraham. Right? And you remember there's three marks of the Abrahamic covenant. Land, blessing, you'll be a blessing to the nation, and descendants, as numerable as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. And so we stand as children of God by faith in Christ. We are descendants of Abraham. And Paul teaches that in Romans and Galatians. And so this is where God makes a promise. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. You'll be a blessing to the nations. You will have in a land of your inheritance and your descendants will be innumerable. And so in, in making this promise, this covenant to Abraham, I want you to look at verse 7. Now, Abraham had believed God and he had counted to him as righteousness his faith. And he said, verse 7, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go out to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun, verse 17, had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Canaanites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now where's the gospel there? Did you catch it? Did you, did you see the good news that's there? Because this is the Abrahamic covenant. This is the, the covenant that we go back to as descendants, as children of Abraham by faith in Christ. We go back to this promise. Did you catch the gospel here? It's, it's a beautiful picture. This formula follows what was uh, true in the Babylonian uh, time frame. This was a well-known suzerainty treaty. Now, uh, a suzerainty treaty is a big word. There was a king, a suzerain, a, a, a guy that was in control, and then he had subjects, vassals, that were under him. And, and the suzerain would enter into a treaty, and there was a formula in fact, the entire book of Deuteronomy is laid out according to the suzerainty treaty pattern. It's a beautiful picture. And, and here we have it. And so what happened is you had the king, and so we have God here 
entering into an agreement with Abraham, with Abram. And so to ratify that agreement, to, to make it set, you know, we go to attorneys today and we have um, notaries that will sign off on documents and then it's binding so that if there's a breach, we go before a judge and we say, here's the, here's the piece of paper that we both signed and that we agreed to. Well, this, the suzerainty treaty was the way that they did that in the ancient Near East. And so what they would do is they would bring a cow, a bull, and they would cut it in half. And then both parties would pass through. And it was the most graphic, symbolic way of saying, if either one of us breaks our end of the bargain, may what's happened to this bull happen to us. May the same thing, may we be torn limb from limb if we don't hold up to our end of the bargain. Now, do you still see the Gospel? Do you catch the Gospel in Genesis 15? A smoking firepot and a flaming torch. Abram in a deep sleep, having this vision. Animals and this bloody path carved between the firepot and Abram. And who passes through? God passes through. And only Him. And what's significant about that is that God was taking upon His shoulders all of the breaches, all of the covenant unfaithfulness, infidelity of His people forever. Only God passes through. This is why Jesus was torn on the cross. Because God had taken all the responsibility for His people's unfaithfulness. This is why Paul says at the end of Romans 3 that in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God was assuming responsibility for all of our sins. He, he was faithful to His covenant. Rome had charged the reformers with a, a legal fiction that, that what you're saying about your righteousness can't be because you're not. You haven't gotten to the end. You haven't done all the sacraments. You haven't at least gotten to the last rites. You, you haven't made yourself righteous yet. So it can't be that you are. Because God would be unjust. It, it's, it's an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 15. To call wickedness good and good wicked. So why would God do that? Well, there's justice that has to be served. That God would be just and the justifier. What God's law demanded, His love fulfilled. What His justice demanded, His love provided. The way that Augustine said this is he said, God, command what you will and give what you command. 
I want to leave you with this tonight. Jerry Bridges um, beautifully articulated this. Uh, And he said that your best of days, the best that you've got, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. And in your worst of days, you're never beyond the reach of it. It was absolutely necessary for Jesus to die because man had sinned. Think, well, could he have cashed the check any other way? Could could God have made a plan for our salvation any other way? And the scriptural answer to that is no. Because man and man alone had sinned. So we are the ones who should pay. But the one that we sinned against is an eternal God, and we can't pay. That's, a, that's an eternal payment that we'll never be able to make. So it took one who could touch both God and us, one who was fully God, to pay God propitiation, and who was fully man. I, I want to read you this hymn from Philip Bliss. It's entitled, Hallelujah, What a Savior. Um, we, we sing here, Hallelujah, often. Hallelujah is a, an old Hebrew word. It, it means praise the Lord. Hallel, to praise. Yah, praise the Lord. So when you say, when you sing, Hallelujah, you're saying over and over and over again, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Philip, Brit, Philip Bliss in 1875 said this concerning Christ. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood. Sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement? Can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was He to die. It is finished, was His cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And when He comes, our glorious King. All His ransomed home to bring. Then anew His song will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And Jesus, we are in great, great need of You. Now Jesus, I, I, I ask tonight that You would lift Yourself up in this place, that You would exalt Yourself. Father, that You would set our eyes upon Your Son and that Him we would proclaim as our only, as our only salvation. With an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, that we would be transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. God, without Christ, there is no hope. There is no salvation. There is no forgiveness. There is no atonement. Jesus, I thank You 
that no one took your life from you, but you laid it down willingly of your own accord to glorify your Father and to save your people. I I pray tonight that we would take these things, uh, even Jesus, as you said, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that we would hear, that we would listen, that our hearts and our minds and our eyes would be fixed upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith. satisfies and I and I ask tonight that where we have been satisfied with so much less that we would have a holy discontent uh, God an appetite that could only be filled and satisfied by you and so would you purge us Lord and set Jesus up as our satisfaction it's in your name that I pray that